this was as our pilot study with Syrian mothers was coming to a close. And as fairly mainstream researchers, methodologically speaking, in sociology, we dipped our toe into something slightly inspired by a participatory action research. You know, researchers and participants are working really collaboratively. So we didn't do a full-on PAR type of a project, but we dipped our toe by um, convening a panel at that conference that included the three professors who had spearheaded the original project, a team of our RAs who had been integral into actually conducting the ethnographic uh, work. So these were graduate students across U of T who speak Arabic and were able to really be these incredible interlocutors without whom we couldn't have done this. But we also had the voices of two mothers who were very keen to be part of the research process with us. And so we had invited the mothers also to join us on this panel. And so as you would imagine, the audience was vaguely interested in what the prof said, a little bit more interested in what our RAs shared, but keenly interested in the insights from our two research uh, participants, the mothers. A discovery is one that just kind of keeps happening again and again, the surprising discovery that sometimes your research participants say no, and you have to be like, oh, that's not just obstructive, let's think of that as generative in some way. And sometimes they say, yes, but, and that but, is a more complicated and awesome way of saying no. It's like, yeah, I'll do that with you if you change everything about your research question. So they say yes, but then they entirely change the trajectory of the research, right? And that's the kind of discovery that keeps me interested on, on a bunch of different scales. Beyond Limits. On today's show, it's two for one. Two profs who, it must be said, are not currently collaborators on one show talking about some of their successes, inspirations, and unexpected turns along the way in their respective research paths. Today's guests on View to the U are University of Toronto Mississauga professors Neda Magboule and Jasmine Ralt, who define and explore their particular studies that covers topics such as race, immigration, ethics, place, sexuality, archives, and digital humanities. Today we go beyond limits, not just of race and gender, but also moving past some traditional models of how research is realized or conducted, and also beyond the limits of imagination. We are also expanding into two different departments, with the Department of Sociology represented by both profs, as well as the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information, and Technology, where one of them also holds an appointment. With the second season of the podcast focused on women in academia, both Netta and Jasmine talk about the importance of sponsorship and cultivating a network of mentors, as well as identifying those who will be part of your significant support system to see you through some challenges you might face along the way. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T, Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Netta Magboule is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at UTM and the U of T. Her research integrates the study of race with the study of immigration by examining settlement and discrimination-related challenges faced by Middle Eastern and North African, or MENA, heritage immigrants who settle in North America. Netta completed her BA in sociology at Smith College before earning her MA and PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara, 
Prior to joining U of T in 2015, she was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Faculty Diversity. Netta's first major project on Iranians and race in the U.S. culminated in a sole-authored book, The Limits of Whiteness, published in September 2017 by Stanford University Press. She is currently the principal investigator on a recently funded five-year SHIRK Insight Grant that is a longitudinal study of integration-related stress among Syrian refugee newcomers to Toronto and Peel region. In 2018, she was also awarded the Ontario Early Researcher Award by the Ministry of Research, Innovation and Science. My name is Nada Magbulev. I am Assistant Professor of Sociology, and my work uh, broadly is at the intersection of the sociology of race and the sociology of immigration. I have a specific interest in groups from the MENA region, which is the Middle East and North Africa, who migrate to North America. And so the first project I did, which culminated in a book that came out this past September, was about the case of Iranians in the United States and how both at home in Iran and in America they have been integrated as a white racial group but wealth of evidence about their racialization and discrimination contradicts that status and so the literature and sociology isn't quite able to account for the experiences of that group and so my first monograph looks at some of the nuances of that case. The book is called The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race and it's out with Stanford University Press. Throughout the course of sort of finishing up with the book, I was really lucky to be here in Canada um, for that epic federal election in 2015, where we had regime change here, and suddenly this newfound commitment to integrating 25,000 Syrian refugees by the end of that year. And so with Prime Minister Trudeau's commitment came targeted research grant uh, through SHIRC and the Government of Canada for researchers from any field to do a project related to the well-being of Syrian refugee newcomers. And so myself and two colleagues in my department, Professor Ido Peng in public policy and sociology, and Dr. Melissa Milkey here at UTM campus, who's also our graduate chair, we put together a proposal and somehow got the funding. So we did a one-year pilot study of stress among Syrian newcomer mothers, and it was really cool just to get those sorts of insights directly from uh, the newcomers themselves about the things that were working and working less well in their first 12 months in Canada. So I just recently stepped up as PI on a kind of five-year longitudinal expansion of that first project, and we got both grants we went out for. We just found out about that, so it's exciting. We have about half a million dollars now, both through SHIRC and also the Ontario Early Researcher Award um, to expand the project and to bring in um, mothers, teenage children as well, because surprise, surprise, the teenagers were stressing them out. <laughs> and so we can imagine that the relationship between parents and teens is fraught in even the best cases, um, but there are particular nuances to the case of refugees that actually really exacerbate that relationship. And so, yeah, we're expanding the project. And once REB and everything is settled over the summer, we are aiming to recruit and begin that study in September. At this point, we are uh, recruiting about 100 families into the study, and um, the pilot study was split between Peel Region and Toronto, um, and we're going to maintain that split because there were really interesting differences um, between the experiences of newcomers who had settled in, in many cases, right, like sort of Arab or South Asian majority neighborhoods in Mississauga or more broadly in Peel versus folks who are a bit more spread out across Toronto, and the composition of those neighborhoods was often, often really different, so we want to maintain that split in the sample. 
Jasmine Ralt is an assistant professor in the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information, and Technology at UTM and has a cross-appointment in the Department of Sociology. Her research focuses on sexuality, gender, race, and ethnicity in considerations of power, cultural change, and aesthetic potential, and incorporates a feminist approach to architecture and design, decolonizing digital research ethics and economies, and the politics of sexuality in transnational arts and social movements. She completed a BA in English Literature at the University of Alberta before going on to York to do an MA in Women's Studies and earned her PhD at McGill in Art History and Communication Studies. Before coming to UTM, Jasmine was an Assistant Professor of Cultural Studies at the New School in New York City. She has been on faculty at U of T since July 2017. Jasmine's first book is Eileen Gray and the Design of Sapphic Modernity, Staying In published in 2011 and reissued in 2016. Her current book projects include Open Secrets, Technologies of Opacity for Queerly Surviving the Age of Transparency, and Checking In, Feminist Data in Networked Publics, co-authored with collaborator T.L. Cowan. Jasmine is currently the principal investigator on a 2017 Shirk-funded Insight Development Grant, Checking In, Building a Digital Research Ethics Collaboratory for Minoritized Materials. My name is Jasmine Ralt, and I'm an assistant professor both in sociology, actually, and cross-appointed with ICCIT, the Institute for Communication, Culture, Information, and Technology. And my work, broadly, I characterize it as queer cultural and communication studies. But, you know, that looks really like putting feminist, queer, and critical race studies, as well as decolonial studies, to bear on questions of cultural practice, of artwork, of social movements. So for me, my first book was on an early 20th century architect um, and how she was building sort of a challenge to the uh, gender, sexual, and racial norms of the early part of the 20th century and architectural modernism in Western Europe, um, how she was designing those into her domestic spaces as well as her furnishings and domestic designs. And my work has gone from there to really different places. So right now I'm working on two or maybe three interrelated projects. One is a collaborative project called the Digital Research Ethics Collaboratory, where I'm working with uh, my longtime collaborator, T.L. Cowan, who's over at UTSC, the Scarborough campus of U of T in arts, culture, and media, as well as at the iSchool. And this is a insight development grant, Shirk-funded project, where we're questioning the kinds of research ethics we bring to bear as research communities um, to our use of digital research subjects. So that can mean how we're putting materials online, but also how we're using materials that are already online. And so the question of ethics in our practice of digital research um, is informed largely by indigenous and decolonial studies of uh, digital archives. So the recognition that not all things should be shared to everyone. Uh, not all things should be put online. Not all things should be open access as much as we have this as a kind of general sense of a public good to make everything as accessible as possible. Indigenous scholars and people in Indigenous studies and archivists and librarians have been like, uh hmm, and communities have been like, well, wait a minute, our cultural heritage has been stolen for a bunch of years and it's being decontextualized and put online with absolutely no attention to the kind of cultural, historical, geographic specificity of these artifacts. And so we've been taking that kind of insight to think about how queer and feminist uh, and trans-feminist archives can be used and publishing can be uh, circulated online. So we have a project that is the 
Cabaret Commons project that started with an archive of materials related to specifically on the Meow Mix cabaret that was in Montreal for about 15, 20, maybe more than 20 years, 97 to 2015 or so. And it was a dyke-centered queer cabaret that ran every month or every two months. And there was a lot of documentation related to it. And we were like, oh, okay, well, we want to put this material in conversation with all of the other queer cabarets that have been running around, largely we understood North America. So we were thinking, okay, Montreal, Toronto, New York, Mexico City, the spaces that we were most, that T.L. Count and I were most familiar with. And we're like, okay, there's so many of these really politicized party spaces that are performance party spaces. And they're leaving these traces that we can learn a lot from and build a lot together with. Uh, learn a lot about a local political situation at the moment, but also across these networks to see that, oh, people are working on problems, similar problems in slightly different ways in different locations. So we had this Meow Mix collection. I'm like, okay, great, let's put it all up online. And we had permissions from Miriam Genestier, who owns the collection, and she was the creator and ongoing curator of the Meow Mix parties and shows. We had all the permissions, we had permissions from photographers, and we were like, hmm, wait a minute, what about the many, many people who are represented in these videos? Sometimes a video would be a two hour long video of people's performances. There'd be anywhere from 10 to 50 performers in a night. We'd be like, oh, shoot, I don't feel comfortable putting that up online uh, without everybody's permission, right? So then we started to think, okay, well, what are the kinds of presumptions that we have about the inherent good of sharing this materials? And how do we do justice to the kind of really locally specific politicized intimacies, politicized and eroticized intimacies that make these scenes of interest in the first place. So how do we do justice to these scenes at the same time as we circulate these scenes and sort of network them through the affordances of digital network technologies? We realized, well, we had to really change the kinds of questions we were asking about what we can put online and how we can put it online. So this, on one hand, is largely about a question of consent, um, but it's also moved into how can we build into these digital spaces, these digital architectures, for my interest, uh, the kinds of negotiated intimacies that are cultivated on the ground that have to do with a kind of a rewarding and, and desire for risk. Uh, but also a kind of collective sense of care for risk. So the risk can be very broad to risks to health, and we know various sexual practices, but it can also be risks to like social status, and it can also be risks around, you know, who's out to their kin networks and to their work networks. We don't want to put those people at risk, but in these spaces, that kind of risk is absolutely, that's what it's about, right? So the Digital Research Ethics Collaboratory is actually a website uh, that is designed to collect people's stories of dealing with digital materials. And when they had those moments of like, hmm, maybe we need to think about this slightly differently. When did we come to recognize that this was not just always good to put things online? And, you know, our tri-council ethics guidelines across NSERC and SHRC and CIHR, the guidelines that we have for using digital materials that's provided by those, you know, basically encourages us to just do it, to just put it up and also encourages us to just use whatever's online. So they have some language around if it's if there wasn't a reasonable expectation of privacy in the conversation that you're overhearing, well, what's a reasonable expectation of privacy on Facebook or on Twitter? And possibly you and I are friends on Facebook and I'm putting a whole screed about like whatever just happened at the party last night, but I know you've been at the party and I know you, you probably weren't maybe last night, but you had been at the party before. And so I trust you all, somebody who's not part of those intimate networks can come in, scrape it, put it somewhere else, and that's ethically permissible, not just permissible, but in, in many ways sort of encouraged uh, by the current digital guidelines, digital research guidelines that we have. So, 
it's one large project. And, and it does make me think about the question though, of, is it hard to persuade people to even think along these lines? Because everyone's so used to everything being put up online that I can imagine that you must be met with some people saying, well, really, is this, do we have to consider this? Well, and that question, the do we have to consider this, is this really such a problem, is a question we have too, right? Yeah. Because our impulse was first to put things online. Mm-hmm. And, and we just want the question to be asked, not for the question to always be, no, it's not necessary. In some cases, we just need to entertain the possibility that it might not be necessary. Or some different technologies might need to be designed and some different digital architectures might need to be imagined uh, to be able to cultivate spaces online that have various levels of access, graded access uh, that, you know, so Mukutu is the content management software that is uh, putting into play some of the most interesting kind of indigenous cultural protocols around cultural heritage and community collections. And, you know, what they're doing is there's traditional knowledge labels. So some things are labeled like this is only to be seen during these seasons of these years, or this is only to be seen by men, or this is only to be seen by women, or this is only to be seen in the context of this ceremony. There's a certain kind of labeling and context provided for the materials, which is one step towards not necessarily saying, no, don't share it, but just share it differently and to make it accessible differently. And some things just really aren't accessible unless you've already been cleared by moderators, which is a model we're all quite familiar with, right? Being cleared by moderators before you can get into it. But those moderators are going to be asking slightly different questions than like, do you like this or that color? Okay, come into our Friends of Purple group, right? It's going to be more culturally specific questions. And so we're trying to think, well, how can we, rather than be like, it's impossible to think speculatively around the impossibilities that are built into our current digital technologies and to recognize that those impossibilities are in many ways socially embedded and ideologically informed to make certain ways of relating impossible that are not uh, dissimilar to the ways in which modes of sociality and relation have been rendered impossible offline, right? You are also raising a really good point, just in that I read about this project naming, which is uh, someone spearheaded in UBC, but they are taking all these photos of Indigenous people who had previously not maybe been uh, identified. Maybe they were at a residential school, but they were trying to circulate these photos to be able to name the people that were in it, to give them names and sort of more of an identity because there's this whole area of Canadian history that, you know, we don't really, uh, I think, growing up in Canada, we didn't talk about residential schools and we weren't taught about them. So I look at this as a positive that, you know, they're taking these photos and people are being remembered and recognized and all this stuff, but you're raising the point that this is also then sometimes an infringement on people's... And so there's that study that started at UBC has been scaled up to the Canadian National Archives. Um, and there's the whole Canadian Archives naming project. So if you go to the Archives website, you can you get to fill out all this information if you wanted to name people that are in the National Archives collections. But then, of course, the, the other step that is not unprecedented um, and has been done in several places in the U.S., and I'm actually not sure in Canada, but it is about repatriation. The quite simple, ah, well, I say quite simple, but the question of like, should we, as this kind of archive of colonial theft and exploitation, still have these photos? Should we have them? Should we claim them? Should we be circulating them at all? Or should we be giving back to the communities of origin, to the people whose image we took, stole, stored, and used as part of our colonial project? Um, So give this stuff back. I say that's a simple question of repatriation, but of course it becomes m- m- complicated uh, for anyone because you think there's very few of us who actually have 
the facilities to be able to store some of these archives safely and in perpetuity. I think that more and more people are starting to ask um, more complicated questions of what seemed like a really simple technological fix uh, that was enabled by the internet. And of course the internet was never designed for us, it was designed for the military, so it's no surprise that it turns into this great big surveillance machine garbage fire of colonial racist misogyny. That <laughs> <laughs> was a feel-good interview. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any findings or results that uh, you mm -hmm. uh, have come across over the course of your work that you have found particularly surprising? Sure, there are surprises every day in this line of work, which I think Jasmine would also say is part of why we do this, you know. But one that sticks out in my brain came from the Canadian Sociological Association, like Congress, um, last year, which was held in Toronto. This was as our pilot study with Syrian mothers was coming to a close. And as fairly, I don't know, mainstream researchers, methodologically speaking, in sociology, we dipped our toe into something slightly inspired by or resembling uh, participatory action research, which is a different kind of way of imagining the research endeavor as something that you know researchers and participants are working really collaboratively. That boundary is troubled, you know. Um, so we didn't do a full-on par type of a project, but we dipped our toe by um, convening a panel at that conference that included both um, the three professors who had spearheaded the original project, a team of our RAs. Who who had been integral into actually conducting the ethnographic uh, work. So these were graduate students across U of T who are um, natives of the region who speak Arabic and were able to really be these incredible interlocutors without whom we couldn't have done this. But we also had the voices of two mothers. Um, there were two mothers who were very keen to flex their sociological imagination and to be part of the research process with us. And so we had invited the mothers also to join us on this panel. And so as you would imagine the audience was like vaguely interested in what the prof said, a little bit more interested in what our RAs shared, but keenly interested in the insights from our two uh, research uh, participants, uh, the mothers. And one of the things that the moms, I mean, they were full of these incredible insights, um, but one of the things that they said, which should not have surprised me. It's like intellectually I knew it. The mom said at the same time that these professors were studying us, we were studying them and we were deriving sort of our wisdom or insights about Canada based on how we were being treated throughout this project and we were able to sort of extrapolate different hypotheses or you know um, just to, to draw conclusions about how we could project into our futures based on looking closely at these RAs and looking closely at these profs and again like that's not a gee whiz moment it shouldn't have been but for me that was very profound that really like the tables had turned and um, that this was uh, just as much their knowledge production and sort of involvement in the research as it was for us too. I love that and it also corresponds with some of the discoveries that I come across. One of the big surprises in doing the Cabaret Commons project, which was also you know, one of these shirk-funded projects that we had done for several years, and instead of building something, we came up with a bunch of questions about building stuff. Um, and the questions that we came up with were entirely from our interviews with artists who were performing in these shows, right? We were like, well, what would you want from another online space to show this work? 
And as researchers, we're like, we want every ugly grainy video. We want every unflattering photo. We want every poster, every playbill. We want every performance meme you ever used. We want it all up online, right? And the artists, some of whom were like, sure, yeah, that's great and hilarious. Put it all up there. And some are like, no, I'm a professional working artist. That was a, a work in progress or that was just a one-off for my friends that night. It was a benefit for their surgery party or that was a benefit for, you know, this like refugee needs. Like, you know, most of these are benefit or social justice oriented cabarets and, and they're like don't put that online like absolutely not and that it reaffirmed for TL and I the recognition that we are trained as researchers into an extractive model of research which is of course this long colonial legacy of most of our universities is to just go and take and take and take much more than we give and also to forget that our research participants or our research subjects I suspect is the conventional model right are not just participants but are in fact co-creators of any of the knowledge that we're possibly going to make. And so the fact that the mother researchers that you're, you know, working with, it turns out that they're coming up with as much or more knowledge than you're coming up with um, is something that has really informed our DREC project when we're like, okay, well, you know, we're trained into just kind of going all over online and like, let's scrape this, you know, hashtag off Twitter or let's Python script scrape all of this data and like take all this data and make conclusions about it. And we forget that the people who are making that data are often, you know, way more capable of making conclusions about that material. And in fact, we underplay the extent to which their knowledges are formative in what we think of as our knowledges and that we credit from and what we benefit from and that we get a certain kind of academic value and sometimes monetary value from. A discovery is one that just kind of keeps happening again and again, the surprising discovery that sometimes your research participants say no and you have to be like, oh, that's not just obstructive, let's think of that as generative in some way. And sometimes they say yes, but, and that but is a more complicated and awesome way of saying no. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that with you if you change everything about your research question, if you change everything, if we're not building an archive, but instead we're helping to organize the archival materials that are under my bed right now. And then we're not putting them online, we're just organizing them and digitizing them and then I'm keeping them. So they say yes, but then they entirely change the trajectory of the research, right? And that's the kind of discovery that keeps me interested on, on a bunch of different scales. Yeah, and I love that because I think for both of you, what you've just described is that sort of emphasis and the power of that reciprocal nature of research. And so uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into this particular field of study in the first place. Yeah, mine is a, I think, quite typical story of um, someone who goes off to university as an 18-year-old and had never heard the word sociology but took that first class, right? And it was like worlds open to me where things that I had observed, you know, were sort of validated as patterns that were linked to structure. Um, I had a whole new vocabulary, the language to put into words, things that had often bothered me or just things that stuck out as intriguing. So that's, you know, the genesis of my whole career just was that one first sociology class that blew my mind. I think the reason why I stayed in sociology all the way throughout undergrad, through my PhD, and now in an appointment in a sociology program is I appreciate it's a broad umbrella, you know, like methodologically, substantively. I'm thrilled that one of the 
courses I teach at UTM, which is considered a service course, meaning it's a slog and people typically don't like to teach the class, but it's the one that renews my like passion for sociology every term, is called Logics of Social Inquiry. And it's a sort of survey course where students get a taste of everything from demography and statistics all the way through ethnography and social network analysis, everything in between. And so just recognizing that there's this plurality of methods, these means to actually like collect data and analyze it. It just renews my passion for Soch and how it's unwieldy and can be troubling, but also it's its most exciting yeah. thing about it. Right. And I know though you have also an interesting story, if you can talk about it, but for your book, Limits of Whiteness, I remember you telling me that it sort of came about when you were coming to Canada. Sure. So, you know, when I had uh, done my PhD in the U.S., and I was also born in the U.S., so all I had known was the United States, really, except for a couple semesters of travel here and there. But, you know, it had always been kind of this project that I imagined toggling between the racial ideologies and hierarchies that shape the socialization of people in Iran, who would then be the immigrants to the United States later, right? And how they enter a different racial order that sometimes have rules that map onto, but also differ dramatically at times from like the racial order that people learned back at home. And so I was still thinking of it in this sort of like binary, the homeland, the host land, you know, things that transnationalism had troubled like many decades ago, (laughs) but I was trapped there, like just such an ugly American, frankly, you know, and then the simple act of getting a academic appointment in a third country, like a different place. And the simple act of like, crossing the border at Niagara and my own race changed where on the Canadian census, Iranians, Afghans, people from that region of the world, like Southwest Asia, technically, right, would occupy the category in Canada called West Asian versus in the U.S. where Arabs, Armenians, Iranians are classified as white. And so that was like a very profound thing. Again, it shouldn't have been my like Oprah aha moment the same way (laughs) what I said about the panel we had at Congress. It's like intellectually, I had read the literature. I knew that this was a thing, but it was that embodied act of like crossing a border and the way the state made sense of or integrated me. It was different. And so that animated then all of the revision and really like the shape that the book took. The book was written entirely like in three years in Toronto. And so it was data, the ethnographic data had been collected as a graduate student, but everything from like the political philosophy of Charles Mills, right? Who has his PhD from U of T through just like so many different influences. These were my Canadian influences that really actually shaped the monograph that ended up coming out. When the National Film Board gives you money to make the movie of your life, it's going to be, you're going to have that aha moment in the, on the Maiden of the Mist. I'm like, wait a minute. So much more complex. We follow the droplets of the Niagara diaspora. That's that cultural studies, sociology, you're able to really bring it together with this beautiful visual. I love it. Well, and I think that, you know, like, I hear your story of coming to sociology and coming to academia, and for me, it was certainly not coming to the social sciences. It was definitely the humanities. So when I entered undergraduate, Uh, my undergraduate at University of Alberta, I went into English and I was just profoundly attracted to the tools for imagining other worlds that were beyond what were rendered the limits of my current world. And I grew up really working class, Alberta. At the time it was profoundly and pronouncedly homophobic. Uh, Now it's, you know, sort of more culturally homophobic. Um, And there was kind of legacy of colonialism so heavy in the racism of Alberta. And from the earliest age, I knew that that was not a place I 
ever wanted to stay. And getting into my undergrad was a way of tapping into literature. And I just had the most awesome professors in the English department at U of A, especially at that time. It was turning into this center for queer post-colonial feminist literary studies and film and cultural studies at uh, that time it was making the big turn. And so, you know, I just, I got to read the best stuff, you know, I got to read the best post-colonial literature, I got to just watch the best films, and to me it was this imaginative capacity beyond uh, what were rendered the limits of my imagination. And that I, like you, had the intuitive sense that there was more, but I never was able to put words to it yeah. uh, and put space to it. And so that hooked me. I did my master's in women's studies out at York University, and then eventually through a kind of long story, I ended up doing my PhD at McGill in art history and communication studies. So this strange combination that was quite new when I started, I entered the program in 2002 uh, and it had just started its little experiment of being this uh, really unique program. And for me, it met my needs perfectly because I wanted to do a kind of cultural study of, and in Canada, communication studies is informed sort of horribly and for what it's worth, okay, by Marshall McLuhan. So what we have is this, in Canada, communication studies is cultural studies, which is quite different, I think, than the US. I always feel like I need to make that distinction. So I had a cultural studies approach to architecture and to architectural histories. And that was one of the rare places where I was able to do that kind of work. And my supervisors, Will Straw and Christine Ross, were across the two divisions, and it was dreamy for me. From there, you know, I've started to think about what it means to occupy domestic spaces and spaces of intimacy across a bunch of different sites. So it's not only about domestic architecture, it's also about party spaces. It's also about uh, the kind of intimate spaces online. And also, I, you know, have given a certain amount of thought and some uh, publication to occupying spaces within social movements. How does a social movement shift by bringing in or integrating or sometimes being broken apart by a new set of investigations? One of the projects that I liked doing most was on sexual politics in Mexico. And so looking at how sexual politics came to be articulated as a social movement priority in Mexico in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, sort of the history of queer culture and queer politics in Mexico is so different than in Anglo-North America and is so much more aligned to sort of Latin America broadly, which means that it's much larger. It's always been co-articulated with a kind of move towards a redistribution of resources, towards socialist demands for different models of power, and towards decolonization. So the politics of sexuality and then the contemporary articulations of sexuality in Mexico are really distinct from Anglo-North American or Anglo-world histories of sexuality. So that, you know, this kind of starting from architecture and moving into questions of other spaces has been generative for me, but it's always been rooted in this humanities question of how do the arts get us there? How do arts push our imagination beyond the limits of the possible? This is a very broad question, but you know, I like to ask it because I think it could lead to lots of different answers, but what do you feel is the biggest impact of your work? I think the kind of immediate feedback I've gotten about uh, my book since it came out in September has made me feel like efficacious. I hopefully said that right. <laughs> Efficacious in a way I have not yet felt in this career. Everything from when the book went online for pre-sale on Amazon and I had sort of a millennial readership begin to post, you know, photographs on social media of like I'm holding my book or going around 
North America, speaking to a variety of communities, including university communities, but also like taking it to retirement communities of older Iranian immigrants, sort of the way that it's been read by book clubs in my community. You know, I just am like totally overwhelmed and shocked by the way it's been taken up by Iranians in Canada and in the United States, in particular, because I think in some sub-communities or subcultures, we sometimes have, and oftentimes deservedly so, a sense that people don't actually show up for you. They say they will, but they're not going to put the resources there to support you. And we sort of, I think as like artists or scholars can sometimes have an antagonistic relationship to the communities that we belong to sometimes. And so it was really one of those moments where I felt like people showed up and even folks that politically or in other ways I thought might not be on board with the project, even though they might not agree with the claims or they try to debunk the evidence, they actually like really have showed up for me. And so the kind of impact I think it's made in Iranian Canadian and Iranian American spaces. And, you know, I've had people reach out to say, I really want to pursue um, like a Persian language translation so that this book begins to circulate in Iran because we have cousins or, you know, people that we know that really want to learn more about this. Or people have said, would you consider recording an audio book? because my parents or grandparents don't like to read, you know? And so I've said to them, I'll read it to them over the phone. But I don't think an audiobook is in the works. Just that's been totally exciting and a kind of immediate uh, sense of, of gratification, for sure. It's amazing to know that it's like resonated with that many people, though. Like, as you say, beyond the academic audience. Yeah, because, you know, you always, I think write with some audiences in mind and I think unabashedly at different points in the writing process I had prioritized this community of diasporic Iranians and there were times where I think other people in sociology either questioned that choice or wanted me to sort of pause and take stock of what I might be giving up to have made that decision but ultimately I think that it reached the audience that I actually had in mind. And maybe that's not the same audience that other folks in my field more broadly are looking to write for. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, and what about you guys? You know, that's awesome. And no, I have nothing that feels nearly so <laughs> efficacious. It's or, just top of mind. Yeah, that's that was awesome. the thing that's now done. Yeah. yeah, no, that's so exciting. And hopefully that's just going to keep happening. One of the things that I realized from my book that came out in 2011, got reissued like a few years after in 2016, but it was, you know, about modernist architecture. Architects were not particularly interested in it because I'm not writing for architects. But, you know, people who were doing history of sexuality, people who were doing history of design, from a kind of more cultural studies angle. They were really intrigued and I got, what became interesting to me was publishing a book, no matter when it's published, you get like waves of interest. So I had a few years of people being interested and so going and talking about the book. And then a few years were died down. And then a few years were like popped back up again. Mm -hmm. So you're having this like moment right now that feels thrilling, but even if it feels like it dies down next year or two years, it's gonna come back. Like that's what's I think amazing <laughs> well, about putting rate with Trump <laughs> and Iraq. Hopefully, you know, in not too long from now, people are gonna be like, racism, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool that your book was reissued. Right, yeah, that was nice. It's nice that for it to have a kind of revitalized life. I think that for me, the, the biggest impact of my work, quite honestly, is with students. And that's less so much my research work, which I see has, you know, ripple effects and creates networks and creates like shifts in conversations within research communities, but it's with students and, and being at UTM is really fun for me. I was previously at the New School for Social Research in 
New York for six years before coming here. And it was great at the new school, but there is something especially awesome about being at UTM and the students here that are so smart and that don't understand themselves always or necessarily as academically smart. Mm -hmm. So just to see that moment where students are like recognizing that the value of their ideas are on an equal par with the ideas that were brought into the classroom by the textbooks or by the readings that I'm bringing in. And to have that across any kind of teaching that I do, the fun thing for me is to see the ways in which these ideas transform their lives. It sounds so cliched and simple or something like that, but you see, for me, I see them imagining new worlds for themselves. And again, this imagining beyond what seemed possible. And so whether that means students going into grad school, whether it means them taking, you know, a job on another part of the world or the country or the city that they hadn't imagined going into or, or whatever it, it, it means, because it means differently across every student, the biggest impact is to just see students' lives be transformed by their interaction with the ideas that come in from the readings I choose and then the conversations that we have in the class. And so like there's something still I find quite magical about classrooms. We don't have anything like that. Any other context in the world is like a classroom where the idea is that you're all failing together and perhaps collectively coming up with something slightly better than what you came in with. And like, where do we have that? Right? And when do we most need that than right now in this kind of moment of the most spectacular recent forms of the failures of kind of democracy and capitalism? The classroom has an impact that I'm always surprised by and that I, I think feels like where my work lands most. I find that so reassuring because there's online classes that you take, which I know that there's value in that too. But I think that there is something about that sort of collective and the connection and the debates and like all that stuff that could only happen within the context of the classroom. And I mean, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes the yeah. failure just stays at failure. But there's a possibility that that failure can slightly shift into other generative modes of asking questions or orienting yourself. And that is like magic to me. Yeah, that's great. Coming up, Women in Academia. Netta and Jasmine talk about the importance of cultivating a network of sponsors, as well as identifying those who will be part of your significant support system. And so uh, the last question I have, I've mentioned season of UTDU is a focus on women in academia. And so the discussion of promoting and supporting women in all careers is an ongoing dialogue. But I was just wondering if you have personally come across any challenges in the course of your career, or if you have words of encouragement, or sometimes what's been brought up in this space is there was a mentor that sort of inspired you to continue on, any of that? Yeah, I think the, the challenges facing women in academia are connected to the challenges facing women in all career tracks. Some of the specifics uh, may be different, but uh, nonetheless, these occupations, these industries, they all were designed to promote and benefit and serve in every case, white men. Like, that's all of them, and that's not specific to academia, right? And so I think at best, this career is one that tolerates queer people, it tolerates uh, women of color, but there isn't anything that I've experienced that resembles, right, a kind of acceptance, much less thriving. And so that sounds really negative or cynical, but I think that when I look across 
the character of women's work in a variety of fields. That's pretty much the state of affairs. And so there was just a study that came out, a report yesterday that said across sort of different occupations in the wider field of higher education, women of color make 67 cents on the dollar to what white men make. And that's across administration and faculty and staff. So collectively, 67 cents on the dollar. And so um, I think a sociologist might say, right, we could start with the material and we could actually start, right, with equity in pay. I would say uh, what has characterized the better parts of my trajectory and stark contrast to places where I struggled um, really was about cultivating a network of mentors or even like something I'll share, which was like a piece of lingo I picked up along the way since starting the job at U of T, which is cultivating a network of sponsors. And so you could think of sponsors as somewhat different than mentors. Mentors are kind of in the trenches with you, helping you through kind of the ticky-tacky of like everyday life and your job. And it's good to have more than one. You're sort of sharing the load and getting multiple perspectives, but also that it's so key in this career to have sponsors. So that's someone who sort of would vouch for you they have access to opportunities or networks that you don't because actually they sort of in the power structure occupy a higher position than you and so cultivating a network of sponsors as well right who aren't doing sort of the on the ground mentoring or peer mentoring with you but can sort of you know put your name forward when those little niches or those windows open up that that's key and so I realized in my trajectory the places where I had momentum and where I just felt like I had synergy between my life, my goals, my career, where these moments, right, where mentors and sponsors either revealed themselves to me or it was it was serendipity. We found one another. And then there have been times, right, throughout the career track where the mentors or even sort of peer mentoring colleagues that has felt more fraught or more frayed, those connections. Yeah, to the extent that women or other marginalized people in whatever occupation can lift one another up and find one another and cultivate those sorts of relationships, I think is really key. And so it's interesting right now as assistant professor to be stepping into a more mentoring function for um, scholars who are coming up through undergrad or graduate school, postdocs. And so right now I kind of feel like I'm in, in between. I still need some mentorship profoundly, but also I'm being asked to mentor in new ways that are really challenging and interesting too. You know, I was thinking about this question. I was like, oh, there's so many ways to answer this question, but I was so happy that the way that you answered it in it, because like, it's exactly the same. I was like, well, I think the only problem with, you know, being a woman in academia is if we forget that kind of misogyny and racism and homophobia and transphobia and a profound classism, we forget that they're as strong here as they are anywhere else. So that I think one of the myths that we as academics need to fight against is that we are somehow some exceptional space. And that is often what leads to, I think, some of the more kind of violent and egregious experiences of sexism and, and racism, where we, as a sort of like a church, right? Academia operates often like a church, where we're like, this is a place that it should not happen. We all can agree that. And so when somebody says, hey, it's happening all the time, it's derailed my career, it's made it impossible for me to finish this class, it's made it impossible for me to have a life as faculty, as staff, as student, often the university's answer, and sometimes it comes in the form of individuals' answers, is it should not, so it is not. So then we deny it and we cover it up 
But if we can just be more clear and more honest and more communicative about the ways in which it's absolutely here, that we are deeply imbricated in the logics, the power structures of misogyny and colonialism and racism and all the things that form the larger culture that we're a part of and that we're, that we're born of and that the university was, in fact, invented to sustain. And so that, I think, it's no different. I had nothing worse or better academically than I have in any other job or any other experience in my life. But I, then the other thing that I was just going to say is like, yeah, you got to find your people. And, you know, I think NATO puts it like much more systematically to be like, okay, you find your, your peers, you find your mentors, you find your sponsors. I like that way of thinking about it. And those are the only ways that any of us are going to get by. And I think it's the same for the white dudes who we sometimes are going to paint white straight dudes who are sometimes going to be like, oh, they're fine. They're, they're flourishing. But no, they're, they're only if they flourish, because honestly, academia is a lonely, alienating, and often really disempowering place. If they're flourishing, it's because they found their people. And so we just need to name that. They found their people, and those people are sustaining a particular kind of logic that sometimes works against the possibility of our sustaining. We need to find our people. And it's no different than what anybody has ever done academically or, like you say, in any kind of profession. So one of the things I tell graduate students is that you might have differences with your cohort. And you might, you know, around the seminar table, you know, really want to fight it out over ideas, interpretations of text, directions you want to take your project. But remember, those are your people. Cultivate that. That's going to be the strongest. It's conceivably. It wasn't for me because I didn't get this kind of advice, but I've seen other people really take this seriously, that cohort can be your champion and can be your place to process whatever's happening to you throughout wherever you take that PhD. Keep that cohort close, even if you have differences with them. Because I've had several different jobs at several different universities, and each time I seek out my people. I've been lucky enough to find amazing people, including at U of T. One of the reasons why I like it here so much on top of the UTM students is that I've been lucky enough to find like amazing network of scholars who are doing the kind of work that I want to see in the world, you know, all across U of T and in the larger kind of GTA. But that's the only way that I've ever been able to feel like, okay, this place is is livable. Livable is not quite it, but you know, I can do my work despite so many of the things that discourage us. That's great. That's a good, I think, note to end on. <laughs> there are other things we could say on this topic, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to thank you both so much for coming in today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. This is really fun. I'm glad I got to do it with you, Me Jasmine. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would like to thank my guests, Netta Magbule and Jasmine Ralt, for coming in to speak about their respective work and projects in the Department of Sociology and in the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information, and Technology at UTM, and for making it such a fun chat. Thank you to the Office of the Vice Principal of Research for their support, and a special shout out to outgoing VP Research Brian Stewart. Without his support, this podcast would never have been realized. Please consider taking a moment to rate the podcast in iTunes. It helps others find this show and feel free to get in touch with me. My contact information is on our SoundCloud page. If you have feedback or if there's someone from UTM that you'd like to see featured on View to the U in the future. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Thank you.